Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Well, hello. What a beautiful conversation we're having today. It's deep, it's inspiring, and you would expect nothing less from someone like Ty Landrum. He's a beautiful spirit here inspiring others not only through asana but through his connection to story to philosophy and to weaving together this amazing tapestry of yoga and art and meditation and poetry um, you know yoga is a form of prayer ritual devotion it's somatic exploration it's tapping into the creative power of breath. It's opening, unearthing, unveiling, uncovering our inner light, expressing ourselves. It's a deep act of listening, clearing space within. It's a gathering. It's dispelling our delusions. It's surrendering to the moment, to the now overcoming obstacles and also transcending and opening our hearts, our minds, our spirits to grace. It brings about revelation and release and we are diving into all of this with Tai. He is deeply, deeply connected to the practice of yoga and it's affected his life in a deeply positive way um, where he was really struggling and suffering and wrestling with darkness and depression and through the practice of yoga was brought back to life. And I'm just so excited to share some of his story and his insights with you today, some of his deeper philosophy and teachings. Um, it's a great conversation, very uplifting, very inspiring, and I know you are going to love this. I sure did. Um, and just so you know, I am opening up my ancient breathing course again. This month coming, I'm going to offer two free master classes on April 7th and April 8th. I would love for you to sign up and join me in these master classes and or join me inside. My ancient breathing course will be starting uh, mid-April. So it's an opportunity to dive in deeper into these teachings, these ancient teachings of Hatha Yoga found in the Hatha Pradipika. It's a deep dive and study of this philosophy, but also an immersion into the practice of pranayama, of breath work, and the study of Ayurveda, and how breathing practices can affect our doshas, also scientifically, how they impact our nervous system, what are some of the things we can do to help ourselves get out of that fight or flight um, pattern in our nervous system, the one that keeps us stuck in anxiety or down and stuck in depression? Usually it's because of an overactive a sympathetic state that we're kind of stuck in that patterning and one of the easiest fastest ways to um, tap into our nervous system and to repattern reprogram our nervous system response is through breathing is through these ancient practices that have been taught for 
thousands of years that come from India. And that's what I'm teaching you in my Ancient Breathing 2.0 program. So jump into these free master classes. There's two opportunities. One is at 2 p.m. Pacific time on Friday, April 7th, and one will be on April 8th in the morning at 7 a.m. Pacific time. Um, so if you're in Australia, New Zealand, or Asia, um, we have this Friday afternoon class for you. So it will be Saturday morning for you. Um, and then the other class will be Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon in Europe. So um, please join. I would love to just really help you retrain, reprogram uh, your breathing and tap in to that nervous system and help you to learn how to use your breathing patterns to really optimize how you're feeling to reduce anxiety and depression and ultimately this pranayama leads to pratyahara the sense withdrawal into the meditation dhyana and then ultimately creating a sense of equanimity and samadhi so ancient breathing and pranayama practices is the doorway, the gateway, I'm inviting you to step through to really deepen your yoga practice and come learn and deepen it with me. I've been studying and practicing pranayama with a very, very high teacher, Sri Opitawari, for many, many years now, over two decades. And I just am so deeply committed to these breathing practices and to the pranayama. It's the one thing that's really transformed my life. And I know that it will also tr transform your life as well. So come on in. You can find all the information in the show notes um, or the link in my Instagram bio. I would love to have you join and support you in deepening your breathwork practice with me. But now let's turn over and dive into this wonderful conversation with Ty Landrum. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm so happy you're here today. We have a very special guest. We do, don't we? <laughs> yes. Someone who needs no introduction, but we'll introduce him anyway. I I have... Uh found this poem that I wanted to read and I thought that um it would it would kind of um set, set the, the set the tone the mood for the whole conversation okay. if you'd allow me to read it please but Ty Landrum learned yoga from pain and heartache loss and confusion old books lost tapes full moons long bouts of silence cold winds simplicity forgiveness surrender and the caring words of a few good friends. He draws inspiration from children, saffron, sage, carob, almonds, chocolate, wise women, gnarled old men, olive trees, deep rivers, steep mountains, quaking aspen, honeybees, love songs, sunrises, laughter, and deep breath. Oh, that's so beautiful. That nice. I want that to be my bio. And evidently also <laughs> Miles Davis's album Sketches of Spain. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, how are you doing, Ty? It's so great I'm to have great. you here. It's great to be here. <laughs> you are a poet and a philosopher at heart. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And you're you're director of the 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 yoga school in Denver that was that was Richard's. But that school's no more. What happened to yeah, that school the folded? School? I thought Richard that school gave folded that to you for or logistical. Reasons. And then was it the did the rents go up and they COVID? were destroying the building or something? No, it was worse than that. It was that oh. that that um so that the set the the yoga workshop had been there for over 30 years. And yeah, yeah. Um, yeah right. I guess it was year 30. Um <laughs> the, lucky the, number 30. The, the, the person who owned the building decided to sell it to some developers who had certain plans to turn it into a a co-working space and so we were out we had uh, um you know we were given the 60-day notice wow. <laughs> wow yeah it was really brutal it was really brutal and 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 totally surprising it took us took us all off caught us off guard and mm. uh, yeah so yeah that's, that's a big happened. change and of course yeah of course we we looked for other spaces nothing really you know, nothing came up that really you know, seemed like it was workable mm -hmm. because Boulder, like it's so many so other places, right? has become, yeah, really just extraordinarily expensive. Um, so there was that. And, you know, it was, of course, a very complicated and emotional decision. But after long deliberation, we decided to just kind of, you know, let it go. And that was, you know, that was a very long de deliberation. Like it was like, we were actually looking for spaces for, for multiple years. Wow. Um, yeah. And wow. it's only been, you know, fairly, I, you know, fairly recently that we just kind of stopped uh, looking in Boulder and decided to, mm -hmm. you know, our next chapter would unfold elsewhere. Yeah. So, Did yeah. COVID have any effect on that decision? um did it did it not really i mean no. you know things yeah that was it was during still during covid we were looking around mm -hmm. uh, in boulder but you know shockingly um you know rents just continued to skyrocket during covid rather than to come down <laughs> yeah. you know, there are fewer businesses opening which I, I don't really understand the economy behind that but um you know so it was yeah. So, Once uh, asked Richard why he didn't become a cult leader, because he seems so <laughs> ripe for it. And I thought, yeah, you could go out and create like a David Koreshian compound in the in the kind of just like an hour outside of Denver. Yeah, and Colorado you know? really lends itself to that kind of right? thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a, so it's a good question. <laughs> did that come to mind at all like a mid like a multi-level marketing scheme coupled with like you know the mm. you know gathering of of weapons yeah we didn't that wasn't we didn't specifically consider that option but oh you know, okay i might have to sleep on that one well yeah <laughs> there's still a future i think about weapons all the time actually you know. yeah you're very apocalyptic i am quite apocalyptic in my thinking <laughs> They say it's because I have low blood blood sugar. Yeah, that's mm. probably the case. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 Norman Allen has this wonderful quote. Um, if you're interested in history, 
there's something wrong with you. Ah. But yet this podcast is, is about uh, like biographies of people mm-hmm. in our community. And we really do want to get your history because there is something wrong with us. Uh-huh. <laughs> wrong with you. Speak for yourself. <laughs> you, you, you show up to each of these. Um, it's more than I do. Um, I wonder, I, I know that you, you got a PhD in philosophy, which is amazing at the University of Virginia. Was that Charlottesville? Yeah, that's Charlottesville. Okay. Uh-huh. I'd, and I'd like to find out how you went from being a jock to that. <laughs> and uh-huh. I wonder where we, if we could start um, with where you started wrestling. Where'd you grow up? Are you from wrestling. Colorado? Are you from Virginia? You no, I'm from Florida. Canadian. You're from I mean, okay, oh, I was Jesus, born in Virginia. Florida, man. Yeah. Born in uh, Virginia, though. Born. Uh, Mm-hmm. I was born in Virginia because um, my dad, because uh, my parents lived there at the time. Yeah. And, uh, but my parents are both from Florida. They're actual Floridians, which is, that's, that's pretty unique. I mean, everybody's parents live in Florida now. Yeah. Yes. Mine, <laughs> mine actually grew, spent their childhoods there. So, um, and, and my grandparents even. Yeah. So, wow. Um, so that's going back tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I, I spent my summers in uh, just outside of Pensacola with my grandparents. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So we're down. Were... I grew up further down south, um, mm-hmm. like maybe two hours north. Well, it used to be two hours. Depends on traffic now, but it used to be about two hours north of Miami. Oh. Now oh. it can take you all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So oh south of Orlando, like but yep. north of Fort Lauderdale, south and east on the coast. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Over there. It was. It was very beautiful, especially back then. It's very developed now, but back then it was quite wild. And um, so it was a fantastic place to be a kid. It was. You kind of grew up like wrestling manatee and that became a lifestyle. I mean, I grew up, I was mostly surfing and skating. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And uh, skateboarding, that is. Yeah. That was my thing growing up. And, uh, but when I went to high school, I did get into wrestling mm-hmm. and that, that brought me to college. Um, and, uh, you, you have I, a quote about that, that you had zero interest in school, but because you've been offered, I a, had zero interest in school. And actually that's what the reason I started wrestling is because it was the only thing that kind of made you know, the only thing that was half interesting that I, that I found at school. And it was really, it was, you know, I, I think I wouldn't at all have been interested in wrestling, except that there was a there was a um, there was a person, a teacher, a guy who taught English, who was just one of the most fascinating characters, and he was also a wrestling coach. Yeah. And um, so he kind of drew me in, you know, to that world, and uh, and yeah, and I got really into it while I was in high school. So I did that quite assiduously, and then. Um, it, it gave me the opportunity to go to a good college, which was UVA, University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And um, I had no interest actually in going to college because I was in a kind of punky, grungy band. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to do that. Were, were you and, the front man or you drums? No, I played bass and you sang also. Yeah, I was oh, a trio. Nice. Cool. Yeah. yeah. It was just loud, obnoxious, kind of, you know, with all the kind of 
Yeah. Anti-institution, anti-establishment. Anti all of that. There was, you, you weren't supposed to be fluent with the, with the musician. With I the, mean, not in the, the band, but mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. in that headspace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somehow I know that about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how. It kind of is a through line, you know. Yeah, no, 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 no. yeah, it was the only sane thing happening, you know, in the mid 90s that, yeah. that I could see. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's where it's, I was er, early funny. in mid 90s. It's mm -hmm. funny how all the anti-establishment, uh, anti-institution people end up in the philosophy department. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Question. And then in Ashtanga, right? Yeah. 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 There's a punk. There's a punk academic through line right there through the Ashtanga yeah. scene that yeah. um, is part of the fabric of why we were interested. Because mm. mm -hmm. there was a people there for us. There was a community. Like, oh yeah, these are this, these are my people. Right. Right. Yeah. Until very recently. Yeah, it's very different now. It's very different. It is. It is actually. It's become, yeah. It used to be edgy and countercultural. Yeah. And now it's like really just not. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? The Shibo, evolution. Where, where do I put my, where's my Wi Fi account? Where's Shibo? my Wi Fi? Shiva, I need the Wi Fi. <laughs> <laughs> funny. Um, but so I'm curious, like for me, when I was, um, you know, in philosophy and immersed in, in the philosophy and religious studies department, I loved it. And that's what actually like drew me to yoga is, is the oh, philosophy yeah. aspect of it. And, yeah. the, mm -hmm. you know, the meditation and the mind stuff, but mm -hmm. what kind of like moved me into the asana was feeling like not embodied. And there was yeah. something really like beautiful about feel. It was almost like living philosophy at that mm. point in my life, I felt like it would, it like was, it, I was understanding something at a cellular level all of a sudden, rather than just a mental level. I'm curious if, if you had a similar experience. Oh, very much. I mean, I, when I came to yoga, I was feeling, I was extremely disembodied. Mm -hmm. um, like I was like really, you know, fully immersed in philosophy graduate school and, um, it was, yeah, all my prana was in my head. Yeah. And I think I, I'd, I'd become aware of that, you know, and I was trying to sort of, or at least something inside me was trying to, trying to connect with, uh, with the earth again. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and yoga did that. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if you could, if you could talk about that. I don't, I, you've probably talked about this on a, in, in every interview. <laughs> But I'm 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 really curious about the the loss that you had been experiencing and the tragedies that you'd been experiencing. And I wonder if you could talk about that because it, you said that it left you kind of um, with taking sadness for granted. That you just just I think yes. to paraphrase, it was just a part of you, and so much a part of you that you you woke up with it and went to bed with it. And yet I that Ashtanga was okay. So yeah, so. All right, so, that, so since we're doing story and all that, so that this, this guy who got me interested um, in wrestling, and also, and and you know, I mean, he got me reading books. <laughs> Not something I was terribly interested in before, but um, so his son uh, became my best friend, 
and he was uh, also wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was really, really good at it. Um, and uh, so we actually ended up, as fate would have it, going to UVA together. And um, from the sa- like from the same high school, and then you know like living together every year. Um, and uh, so when I we also both became disillusioned from the from from the from wrestling itself. Actually, we both just did the first year, even though we were we you know we were there. Um, because of wrestling, but we both just did the first year and then we, you know, respectfully uh, bowed out. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, they just weren't like, it wasn't the kind of people I wanted to be around. There's a mm-hmm. story there to tell, but, mm. but mm-hmm. also when I, when I, when I went to, when I went to university, um, I, I had like this kind of intellectual, I don't know, awaken it that's i don't need to use such a stilted word but it like this i mean i just i found it so extraordinary what people were talking about i didn't know that people could talk about those things and that people had written about those things and so i was just especially in philosophy and then i studied physics too i and I, i i was just so into it and so um so anyway so we did that and um and he mostly studied biology and, you know, we went through college and, and then when it was, when, when that was over, uh, I didn't really know what to do except for just keep studying. So I went to graduate school and we were really into climbing by that point, like Alpine climbing. And so I chose my graduate school based on where they had really good climbing. So I went to university of Washington in Seattle <laughs> And got him to get a master's degree there. And I did that. I did the master's program there. And then I went back to Virginia for the PhD. But so the first week, so he was going to move out there with me, but he was finishing this, um, this, uh, this research study that he was doing uh, on the East Coast. So he was going to move out there with me to climb together. But the first week that I was out there, he had an accident, a diving accident. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he, well, he called me and uh, told me that he was having these really intense headaches. And um, because he'd come up and down too fast, he was helping somebody do something. And he, so anyways, you know, we had that we, that was the last time we talked. He died the next day. He was, you know, skin diving the next day and, and had an aneurysm. He got the bends. Wow and you get a, a nitrogen bubble in the brain from, you know, which can happen from going up and down scuba diving too fast, you know, not following the rules. And he was a rule breaker if he was anything. I remember telling him that day, you know, there are some rules that are worth following. Yeah. Um, so he got the bends, you know, and, and so he died. And, and um, that... And I had just moved to the East Coast. So I went back to his funeral and then I flew back and my graduate program literally you know, started the next day. And I didn't tell anybody that my best friend had died because that's so awkward. Mm-hmm. But I just, and I didn't know anyone either. 
You know, I didn't know a single soul in Seattle. So I just kind of bottled that up and just kind of threw myself into the studies. And, you know, fast forward several years and I'm like really struggling with depression, you know? So after that, that master's program, I moved back to the East Coast and, um, and, uh, and, and now actually his father, who's that person who got me interested in wrestling and in and, and the life of the mind really, um, was also struggling really intensely. And his wife had left him and he was drinking and he was calling me every mm -hmm. Sunday to have these intents and he could, he would, you know, mostly just, he would do the talking, <laughs> would, you know, and it was, it was like these super heavy and, you know, it was kind of, and he was so brilliant that, um, you know, I would listen with astonishment and even though it was pretty heavy. Um, and I, I, I went, I started, I got into yoga right when I went back, um, to Virginia on the recommendation of a friend who said, you know, this can like, he knew that I was struggling with depression. He said, you know, this can really help. So I tried it. And, um, you know, and the first time that I did it, the very first time I realized that I carry around with me this intense heaviness right in my chest. You know, it felt like I was carrying a brick like a cinder block in my chest all the time. And I realized I feel that way all the time and that I had felt that way, you know, ever since, mm -hmm. ever since he died, it was, it was like, it was grief. You know, I was like, this is, yeah. wow, this is grief. I'm like, and, is it, and it was like, I understood that that was the source of it and that I hadn't, um, I hadn't gone into that at all. I hadn't let that move. And, and because the yoga had showed me that on that first day, I knew that it was going to help you know, that, it, that, it, that there was an important process for me to go through there. So I, so I stuck with it. I kept going with it. And, um, and then after a few months, uh, David Griggs came to Charlottesville to teach a workshop. Yeah. And, uh, and I was just really taken by his enthusiasm and by what I yeah. learned about the practice, you know, the passion was unbelievable. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and it was from that workshop that I started going to, the, I did the Mysore thing right after that. Before mm -hmm. that, I was just, I was going on like Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know, and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was full primary. Right. This was back before. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you did. That's just what you did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is before, this is before social media. This is before, you know, or. I mean, maybe social media, this was 2005. So maybe social media was just starting, but like, I, not for me. Like I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about it. So I didn't know it. So like back then, everything you, you heard about Ashtanga was like from your immediate community, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just, but I just remember being like from that, that first day being floored at how totally unreasonable it was that they would ask someone right off the street to do this kind of thing. You know, I was thinking mm -hmm. like, is this okay? It's not you know, okay. It's not okay. And you it's know, and I primary. You're like, what? Not, and I was thinking like, you know, I'm pretty, pretty good. I'm in pretty good shape here, you know? And like, I'm, a, I'm pretty robust and all, but like, I can't believe what they're asking me to do. And then here comes this woman, you know, and she's, ah, and is like, you know, you know, yeah. 
traditional format and all. And so um, a friend of mine who walked into the a class with me said that it was that he had been in the Air Force officer <laughs> training, and he said it was actually worse than Air Force boot camp. <laughs> it was harder. I can believe that. Yeah, yeah uh, just a run-of-the-mill Ashtanga primary class. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I had ex I had an experience there with in David Grieg's workshop that really it, it, that taught me something, and we can go into that if you want, or we can just leave it alone. But I started going to I started doing the Mysore all the time then, but then just to get to the sadness part, and then I'll wrap this piece up. So a few months later, it was in the spring. I started in the fall. It was in the spring, a very early spring. Uh, my friend, uh, this, this older man who'd been a mentor for me for so many years and whose, whose, whose son had been my best friend, uh, committed suicide. And we, and I was the yeah. last person I spoke to, uh, he did it. In fact, uh, the, the night after, um, you know, one of our very long Sunday conversations, and I was also, I had, I had had a, a really rocky short marriage during oh. that time in Seattle. That Good for you. Also, nice. Yeah, I did. So I, 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 my, I, we were, I was going through a divorce and the divorce got finalized in that same week, like just days before he committed suicide. Mm. Wow. And the week before that, this woman, a woman that I, uh, that I had been dating for you know quite a while as my divorce was going but you know broke up with me because i was just like such a tangled mess yeah. so that was an intense week for me yeah <laughs> and, oh, wow yeah and you know and and that's when i mean yeah i mean some that was big for me and that was a that was a really big moment and yeah i'm i'm hesitating and wondering how much to really go into any of this but that's when i think I, I, there, something happened that week that really gave me a, 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 I dropped into my sadness in a way that I, I had never dropped in, into it before, you know, because I, there was no, not, not deliberately, but just because there was nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, uh, and my relationship to yoga fund fundamentally shifted actually during that very same week. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so. In what way did it shift? <laughs> so, um, I can't believe I'm about to tell you guys this, but so I was broken. I mean, I was utterly broken. Right. That week, totally. as you can imagine. And I, um, I'd been struggling for so long, uh, with sadness, with grief, you know, with feeling like things just weren't really working out with depression, you know, with feeling like I could like that, that I was just so unhappy with, with, with everything that was uh, not just unhappy, but like profoundly disappointed in, in all that I'd become. And I felt like nothing, you know, nothing, nothing was panning out that I couldn't, I couldn't embrace myself. I couldn't embrace my life. I was surrounded by so much sadness, so much grief, so much suffering. Um, and, um, and I remember just kind of really letting go and, uh, 
and and you know one night particularly one night and I was living I was living out in this cabin in the Shenandoah Valley and it was snowing and it was this 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 tiny little one room cabin I used to ride my bike 13 miles into uh into the campus every day it was just like I was like into into this kind of ascetic mode Mm. and um I, I, I just, I thought it was, I was, I was letting go and I let go so much. I thought I was going to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course I'd been contemplating, I would have been having suicidal thoughts, you know, for many years mm-hmm. at that point, but I hadn't even really had the intention of like, here I go. It was kind of like, here I go. I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I remember blacking out and I don't know how long I had blacked out. I was alone. And I don't know how much time had passed, but I just remember slipping into a very dark, kind of like falling through darkness. And then suddenly I was above myself, kind of like looking down, you know, having an out-of-body experience and seeing myself on the floor, curled yeah. up, trembling, you know? And, and, I, and, and yet suddenly I felt no sadness. Like I was, mm-hmm. like I, it was separate from me. And I was seeing myself down there and I was seeing that I was seeing who it was that was so, that was, had been suffering so much. And I felt this great sense of calm, this great sense of, um, and, and also a, a, suddenly a, a, a kind of flood of compassion for myself that I had never felt before. And I remember reaching down to try and lift myself up. And as soon as I touched myself, I like, fell back into my body and then I remember standing up and 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 feeling into my own skin in a whole different way you know like I was having suddenly I just had this whole different relationship to my own suffering and to that person that I was and I understood that it wasn't my time to go because I've been, of course, contemplating letting go of this world for so long, you know, for so many years, and like, ah, maybe this just isn't for me. Why am I still here? What am I doing? You know, what's right. the point? And Absolutely. I understood that it, it wasn't my time, that there was a life before me to live and that I was meant to live it. And it was just that simple and that I had to show up for it. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt in my heart, like, okay okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll show up for this, you know, whatever, you know, and I wasn't expecting much, you know, um, but I, I said, okay. And, and I, and I looked outside and there was snow on the ground. And I, and I, I remember that it was the most beautiful scene that I'd ever set my eyes on before. Like I was seeing just the, the just the, the, the beauty of the natural world in a way that i it was just totally overwhelming, so vivid, so brilliant, so bright. And I remember realizing that I was starving, that I just hadn't been feeding myself, you know? And I went and I made myself breakfast. And I don't know if you can, if that makes sense, but because I had never done that before. Of course I had, of course I fed myself before, right? Mm-hmm. But I remember like, making myself breakfast as an act of kindness in the same way that I might mm. do that for someone else that I care about in the way that I do for my children now. Mm. But, you know, I was, 
I was 31 at that point, and I had never done that before in my life. I had never borne that, that, that attitude of genuine compassion toward myself ever, you know? um, which is extraordinary when I think about it now, like, wow, how did I get that rage out of me? Kind of, before that, it was just always like, what should I be? What should I, how should I feel right now? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how should this situation unfold? How, like, and um, what should I have made of myself so far in life? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so that was like, that was a fundamental shifting consciousness for me on that day. It's like, I crossed a certain threshold um, where it's like my relationship to myself shifted a little bit, my relationship to my own suffering. Um, and then with the yoga practice itself, it became very much about like feeling into that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from that other perspective, Yeah, like holding, like, like, like realizing that like it was, that it's okay. And so how, it, what, whatever it is, you don't have to resist it. You don't have to judge it. You can just like feel into it. It's real. It's you, it's from your past and, you know, and here we go. And so yoga, you know, after that for many years was about like feeling into that and, 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 and feeling myself slowly untangle from those depressive lines of thought that were very much about holding myself to a certain standard. You know, this should be like that. This, you should feel this way. You should, this is how it should look. This is how, what you should have made of yourself and all of that kind of, and feeling all of that unravel. It, it took years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like this kind of slow, steady process that I was very conscious of for those, for those years. And, and when that depression finally uh, left, it, 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 it simply left, you know, and I, I have not been stalked by that, you know, for many years, which mm-hmm. I understand is quite uncommon, you know, when yeah. people experience depression. Um, mm-hmm. And I really think I attribute it to the yoga, you know, and to the process of reflection that it, that it uh, supported. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I want to uh, just thank you for yeah. for sharing that. It was it was um, going through your materials uh, that are out there on the interweb. Um, there was a, there was a there was a story I could, I could feel and see that there was a story and, uh, but it's still something else to get to, to tell the story. And I appreciate you having the, uh, generosity to do that. Uh, I, uh, you know, you know, my inclination is to talk about myself, but, um, I'm going to refrain because I, I, there's so, there's so many, <laughs> Um, nodes of sympathy and shared experience for Harmony and I both throughout your story that like, even yesterday we were talking about committing suicide. And so um, she's laughing because it's true. And so, and so, and so um, it's just, uh, oh, it's just, it was just so gorgeous to hear it and to feel it because it is a shared experience and sharing that experience allows people like us to keep going because you understand that it's it's universal it's transpersonal right and maybe you know obviously this is a public 
a conversation for consumption, public consumption, and so that there's a there's an element of that. Um, that said, I, I'm 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 really curious about your PhD, and in this context, mm-hmm. you you said that you were fat, you became fascinated with how eros and amour um, informs the psyche. Mm-hmm. And, and that seemed to be your thesis, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah. that yeah. seems so fundamentally intertwined with what you've just described to us as far as giving compassion For and sure. love I to mean, the self. Yeah. My, my, I mean, my, my dissertation work was very much a meditation on my own, you know, experience. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. written in academic jargon, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so you want to hear um, a little bit about that? Maybe is is that what what you're asking to? Yeah. yeah. So I I, I did mm-hmm. you know write about love, um, write about eros, you know, and so I would like, I I was really fascinated by some of the accounts that Plato gives of the role of eros in human development. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in the Phaedrus and in the symposium. And so those were kind of stepping off points for my own deliberations, you know, about the, about the nature of love. And, and, my, and, and my thinking about yoga is, is, you know, is very much a kind of continuation um, of those things. And um, I, uh, hmm. so let me see if I can, how I can, I mean, I find, you know, as you guys know, like the, the, the Ashtanga Vinyasa, the, the, this, this kind of modern, these, 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 these somatic practices of asana and pranayama um, are, you know, very much informed by uh, tantric traditions, you know, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, that they take their ideas about the subtle body. The Hatha yoga tradition takes its ideas about the subtle body from the tantra from tantra yoga um but but there's also the, the, there's a real sort of shift in orientation right that you find let's just say let's just put it this way this is not sound academic or anything but like the the yoga that 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 the yoga that really speaks to us today you has certain elements in it that you don't find in the classical yoga of Patanjali, right? Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I think our yoga is very much, of course, informed by the classical yoga of Patanjali. So too were those tantric traditions, but it's as if certain, certain points of inf- it's like as if something evolved there, you know? And, um, and there's a, let me sum it up this way, that it seems to me like that, that, that yoga as I, as I know it is very much about helping me kind of open my heart to what is and more fully embrace life. Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of talking about full, opening your heart to what is and embracing life is pretty alien to the yoga sutra. <laughs> <laughs> That's real, yeah. you know, because yeah. the yoga sutra has this, 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 um, this kind of preoccupation that was all over the ancient world at the time Patanjali was writing. You know, you also find it in Plato, even in 
the phydris, this kind of preoccupation with escaping from the, the cycle of rebirth, you know, um, with kind of uh, like transcending worldly existence altogether as the perfection of the spirit, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that, that the spiritual journey ultimately gets you out of here. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so it's very much about, you know, very much about transcendence. And so, you know, Plato talked about these different aspects of the soul. And two of them that were like super important were Thanatos and Eros. Mm -hmm. And Thanatos is the death instinct. And, and the death instinct, right, is... is I mean, what he's talking about there is the death instinct. That's like, that's really important to spiritual life. That's like, you know, the instinct of the moth to like dive into the flame and burn itself up, right? Mm -hmm. Or like the instinct, you know, the, 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 the impulse of the, of the heart to like throw itself into the abyss, mm -hmm. right? To sort of to, to go beyond and not come back. Like that longing to really kind of like melt into the divine, mm -hmm. right? Which you know, in so many traditions, tell us that there's that's a that's an that that's irreme that's an irremediable melting, you know that you don't, <laughs> you don't you don't get to come back from that, and that that's a yeah. that's and that that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. and of course, you know, in 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 and Thanatos is, uh, like in, you know, in yoga, that's about that's that's all that's just the impulse to unravel. There's an impulse to to kind of unravel from attachment and from from you know your your kind of uh your entanglement right in the in the illusions of the mind and so in worldly life and so far as worldly life is, is sort of structured by the illusions of the mind and so that's very very important in yoga practice even as we understand it right and, mm -hmm. and it's 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 basically it's you know thanatos plays the same role for the ancient greeks as as apana does in the yogic tradition, like the mm -hmm. dissolving force. Mm -hmm. it's like so we need that. We need Thanatos because we need to be able to let go of unreasonable attachments, to let go of, you know, to let go of uh, just the way that we kind of cling to particular images of ourselves, particular situations, you know, insofar as those really cramp our space and make us suffer, right? Mm -hmm. but, it's really connected yeah. to surrender, right? Complete. Yeah, to, right. You. I mean, you, without you, without Thanatos, without that dying instinct, there is no surrender, right? That's what keeps right. us clinging: is our inability to let go or to surrender. Right, right. Like it, it is that. It's like it's the, it's the, it's what animates that act of surrender when it's not just like a ritual act of surrender. Like I know that I should surrender; that would help me, and therefore, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I throw all my old love letters into the fire or whatever, you know, and like hope that something internal happens. Um, but the, the, yeah, the Thanatos is like, it's our instinct to unravel, you know, mm -hmm. but what the, the, in, in the yoga that, that, that I think really calls to us. Uh, and I think this tradition like comes into yoga kind of through the tantric influence that helps you more fully embrace life because it sort of, you know, it helps to dispel the delusions that keep you from relating more openly and more directly, you know, to what there is and indeed to, to other people, you know, mm -hmm. and um, 
So there's a, you know, there's a very, there's another orientation. And, you know, from, from the Buddhist perspective, it's like the difference between like classical Buddhism and like Mahayana as it's understood today, right? Yeah. So they have this idea of the Bodhisattva who like could dive into the fire and get burned up like the moth never to return, you know, to be kind of in, but decides instead to come back and to, to, to be here mm-hmm. among other suffering beings simply for the sake of loving them you know? mm-hmm. because there's nowhere else to love. Right. right. <laughs> so the Bodhisattva, <laughs> the Bodhisattva path, because the other ways, like you, you're into the formless realm, you know? Yeah. And so there's no, there's no relationship there anymore mm-hmm. when you fully dissolve into the abyss. And how nice so, would that be? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Talk about suicide again after this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but this idea I, like, I I'd asked Richard that once about uh-huh. um, about like just that like why not like why are we why bother? Uh, and immediately Mary jumped in with that same point. So because we love our family, doofus. <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because there's this other impulse, you know, this this sort of eros impulse right? Which is different from Thanatos, which is like our fascination with this world and our fascination with each other, you know, and this desire to sort of embrace things and to, to experience them and to have intimacy with them and to relate to them um, and all of that. And, and, you know, the yoga, and it's like the Eros and Thanatos need each other, like Prana and Apana need each other, you know, mm-hmm. like the you know, like our like like fascination and wonder also kind of need that impulse of like letting go and 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 of surrendering, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and of course that that kind of brings us, I think, you know, closer into the into the you know vicinity of an understanding of you know what this yoga is that we practice, you know, that gives us um, you know that that like resonates with us, you know, because it's like I really do. Um, want to you know i i i think that the that doing all this yoga helps me be a better father and i and i and i'm drawn to that you know mm-hmm. i'm drawn to be a better father and a better husband and a better friend and a better neighbor even yeah. um mm-hmm. etc and um and of course you, that, that's not patanjali's not worried about any of that <laughs> <laughs> Come on, he's a little worried about it. He's got those yamas in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I always think of the yamas as being like, you know, these are, I mean, there's two ways. I think I, I'm of two minds. Okay. One is the yamas are really about like, you know, do, you know, do, like don't harm others because that will create bad karma for you. And you'll be even more bound, you know, that'll draw you further down into the realm of other beings. And you don't want that. You want to get away from other beings. So don't harm them. And slowly, you know, this process of disentanglement, you know, this this disentanglement of Purusha and Prakriti will will happen. And then my, my other thought about it is, that the yamas and niyamas aren't really normative principles. They're almost like descriptive principles of what, of how an enlightened consciousness operates in the, you know, uh, in the realm of property. This is know? what it looks like when you're doing it, right? Yeah, yeah. This is what it would look like if you do, because, you know, when you think about 
the, 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 excuse me. When you think about the perspective that you take when you apply an ethical principle as a deliberative principle, that's the very perspective, that's the very egocentric perspective that the, that the yoga is supposed to disabuse you of. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you might think yeah. like, you know, and you know, of course, you've, we've all been on like the receiving end of that, like somebody like, I don't know, like trying to, you know, do, you know, do you well for the sake of their own karma, you know, right. or like, or like yeah. or trying to be compassionate to you because they're like practicing on, you know, you get like, you suddenly get that icky sense that someone's practicing on you and you're like, yeah, you're being pitied you know? in a way. Yeah. yeah. And it's so, it's so yeah. offensive. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's both of those things though. Right. I mean, they are prescriptive in that you know, if you're going around lying to people or harming people or other beings, you know, it's hard to enter a state of samadhi. It's hard to meditate because you're so, like you say, entangled with the world or your mind's busy, right? It's creating uh, aggravation. Mm -hmm. But then also as the mind becomes less busy, less aggravated, then of course, those are the results as well, right? You become more clear, you become more um right compassionate less harmful you know so yeah. i i think it i think it's both those things at the same time but i, I yeah, love it, it probably I love is the emphasis of the up and out <laughs> i i do really like this this notion that it's that it describes someone who's doing it well yeah. as a model because it's like when you see and hear about um uh mindfulness teachers or yoga teachers for lack of a better word you know abusing kids it's like yeah they're probably not doing it right they're probably that's I'm probably guessing. not the I way think so. yeah, yeah but then you're kind of confused because it's like well they are really helping me <laughs> that was that was actually an interesting place my mind went as well as yeah. t- like that would that's an interesting sort of question about you know these sort of enlightened teachers that end up being sort of these you know dark shadow teachers and and how do we reconcile those two things in that case can they be reconciled i don't know i mean if you want to know my my yeah you know my armchair speculation it's something like that i think what happens is that when people get in that position because it's always when it's always some charismatic figure that has tons of people gathering around and bowing down and like yeah. and projecting this idea that this person has you know really kind of gone beyond the you know the the the, the dangers of the egocentric mind mm-hmm. and then i think maybe that person actually starts to believe it too mm-hmm. right and then a certain kind of mindful, you know, a mindfulness, or maybe it's a vigilance, although that's not the quite, quite the right word, but a certain like, like suddenly they buy into a certain image of themselves and just go with it. And then d- are almost unaware when these other impulses, you know, these, these, I don't know, these super destructive impulses, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly start um, manifesting thing is i don't think those impulses are in everybody so there's another thing that's something else to explain is like you know why is it that that even those impulses to like do these really abusive things 
start to stalk those people. And I think it's something like this is that though these, you know, our impulses become aggressive and violent and abusive when we kind of some part of our consciousness backs certain other impulses into a corner, like mm-hmm. impulses to do very natural things like explore sexuality and, you know, relate to people intimately with emotional intimacy and those kinds of things. And it's like, if we're telling ourselves that we're kind of above that somehow mm-hmm. and not giving space for those things, like not allowing ourselves to really like relate openly to those things, mm-hmm. then they, they become, you know, they become tormented and and mm-hmm. aggressive and you know in the it's like the catholic priest syndrome yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. that kind of thing and as i'm guessing that something like that is happening to these charismatic figures that they're kind of placing these you know otherwise very natural uh very human uh and it's not the, at all not a it, it's repression it's repression mm-hmm. like placing then, these things yeah. in a shadow and then they, there's an um, an outburst that's entirely toxic and unhealthy, yeah. because there was there was just an opportunity, and there's so much opportunity when you're placed in the role of a of a of a leader of of people of a community. Right. There's something the with question... power though too, right? Like power and feeling invincible. I don't know. I'm just, I'm reflecting because we, we've are... been watching Narcos and, and this idea of like, I mean, it's kind of a bad, bad. I, it's a super bad example. No, it's a great example though, because <laughs> like at the beginning, I mean, even though this guy's making his money from all the, the drugs and he's like, he's making so much money, he's doing really nice things with it in Pablo, some ways, Pablo Escobar. right? He's yeah. like providing Pablo housing Scott for Escobar. the poor yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's like sure. doing like, kind of like, really um community kind of focus things with it but it's like it gets so so much and the power gets so so much that uh, like the the thing that the image that keeps coming into mind is like oh my gosh he's turned into ravana right which i think Uh is just such a beautiful metaphor for for what happens when you you get so much power whether you know whether that prana is through money or fame or cities or you know whatever it is that yeah, like, yeah. you know, he's he was a great um yeah. ascetic Ravana, right? Or a great like powerful yogi yeah. in some some respects. That then it turns, like, I don't know, it like it turns well, it's, it's, it's bad, metaphor, like like poison. I love, instead I love of or where where it, you're doing great things with your asceticism, and the devas come to you with a boon because yeah. it's so threatening to higher beings you know your your tapas is so threatening that you're given this opportunity yeah to... but then like they become evil in some way because yes. of this i don't yeah. know unchecked power or something i don't know yeah is it because of the power or is it because of some image of themselves that they form of being kind of above reproach yeah mm-hmm. i think yeah yeah yeah, for sure. And then you you become resentful if, if people check your power. It's like, what? Who do you think? Who do you think you are? I'm, you know, I'm God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you and you're also there's some part of you like you're refusing to acknowledge that, you know, you're you're refusing to to see kind of when, you know, to to allow yourself 
to see yourself doing something that might threaten your self-image. And so right. you're repressing mm-hmm. that. And that's oh, yeah. when those tensions, I love that about Indian mythology that, you know, that, that all of these demonic figures were once very benign, very sort of, you know, sincere <laughs> practitioners, right? <laughs> practitioners who like, you know, they get a curse put on them or they, you know, some misfortune befalls them or they, you know, they, they make a bad decision at some point and they sort of become evil. And then, you know, and then often, you know, if somebody, somebody comes along Rama or somebody and, and <laughs> shoots an arrow into them yeah. and then the curse is lifted. It's like they reveal themselves as being, you know, something yeah. quite lovable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such a, it's, I mean, it's just good reminders, <laughs> that, that, yeah. you know, that, that it's all there within us also, yeah. right? Like, yeah. even if, if we're not aware that like the worst sort of aspects of humanity are, are within us or the saddest aspects of, yeah. of existence are yeah. there, but they are all there and, and, and that the human experience is universal. And yeah, they are, but you know what it's, I think is different between like, that in that 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 view that we just put put our finger on in Indian mm-hmm. mythology as compared to like, you know, the the I don't know, the the kind of consensus view, let's say, in Western philosophy, mm-hmm. which is basically that, you know, and I don't know how old it is, but it's at least as old as Hobbes, you know, in modern philosophy, that like you're there's a nasty creature inside you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So like you're naturally ruthless and selfish yeah. and aggressive and you want food and sex and power and yeah. you're gonna like do anything that you can do to get it, including like make yourself seem very sort of cultured and, you know, so that you kind of look out for yourself and like you don't want to, um, I mean, of course you have the same idea in Freud, right? And so, yeah. and I think, and that idea we like, it's, it's really has a, stranglehold on popular consciousness yeah it's about ourselves yeah and and in yoga that's not the view that's right it's it's that it's the quintessential difference of whether you're born good or born evil right and so are you like born like pure consciousness like unconditional love and and you're putting on all the garbage that needs to be taken off to reveal this, you know, beautiful, loving presence, or are you exactly born sort of, of sin, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that then you're constantly trying to like, you know, babies strike me as super narcissistic and selfish, (laughs) if you ask me, and they don't pick up after themselves either, which is a sin in my house, you know? (laughs) we should let's yeah, let's evident. how has fatherhood changed you oh, <laughs> speaking of babies and I mean it's for sure it's the best thing that ever happened to me I mean it's just yeah it's been it's just been it's been the most magical time of my life yeah, yeah. Well, seven uh, and five you said they're seven and five yeah a girl and a boy as I remember that's right yeah, we, my we brushed so elbows in in uh, right. Purple yeah. Valley, didn't we? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And share and 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 Harmony passed on some pool toys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah you gotta you gotta that share was, those pool toys. Hugely helpful in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was really I was struck by you at Purple Valley 
uh, I is I very much wanted to connect and get to know you and and share this kind of um, this shared experience with Richard Freeman with you and how profound profoundly transformative it is to be near him and to have a relationship with him and Mary. And, mm-hmm. and yet I, 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 I saw you as incredibly in contained in your mm. energy. And I mm. saw you from afar over there and realizing I, you know, I would be kind of trespassing layers of kosha to, uh, <laughs> to intervene in your containment. Mm. And I, I, I know we're talking about your, you know, I, I think a part of that is like, you have to keep all this energy for your kids, as well as your practice, <laughs> as well as your teaching. And mm. I wonder if that, does that resonate at all? And one, look, one puppy has freed another puppy out of compassion for his, <laughs> his despair. <clears throat> that's wonderful. Um, I can't, I don't remember. I hope that's fair enough. But just you know, in general. In general, the kind of notion I mean, of containment general. of energy for, you know, things that are more important. Well, I mean, I think it's, um, hmm, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think I like my own experience of it is that there are, there are very much moments of sort of drawing in and containing and very much moments of like releasing out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would guess that probably, you know, I mean, I was, I just came back from Purple Valley and the experience is very much like sort of, you know, arriving there and you're kind of, you know, how it is like the feeling yeah. at the beginning of a retreat and at the end, it's so, <laughs> it's so night and day, right? It's like, you know, when you first arrive, there's a little bit, there's like the tension of the, the anticipation and, you know, how's it going to go? And there's like so much in front of you, Um, you know, but then it starts unwinding and you're giving and it's coming Mm -hmm. out and it starts flowing, you know, and by the end you're kind of mushy and <laughs> that's nicely said actually I, I i sympathize with that as well i often um i think people very often take me for a very outgoing extroverted person but it's only after like hours of preparation internalizing and, and hiding away from people that i can stomach it you know so but for sure i mean uh, you know I mean, to relate that to yoga, right? I mean, yoga's taught me so much about like holding a space where um, where there's some there's a kind of balance between what's coming in and out. You know, I think it used to be like before that experience I was telling you about of like nourishing myself for the first time, it was just like out, 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 mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in your 20s, you can kind of do that. <laughs> mm. Feel like you're having yeah. a bottomless place of energy, you know. A bit, I, but I was exhausted. I was, yeah. You know, I was not well. Um, yeah. But the but the yoga, you know, especially this like this the, these yogas that work with prana and apana and that are breath based and you know teach you so much about in, like becoming conscious of it and feeling viscerally this like mm-hmm. nourishing, you know, movements and and these giving movements and, and feeling how they're interconnected and feeling how they, you know, how they can cycle, you know, very naturally. And yeah, I mean, the yoga's taught me very much about that. Yeah. I was, um, I was in graduate school or just finished graduate school when I made my first trip to, to Mysore. And I had, it was exactly that. I was, I was just, 18 hours a day doing something, working, studying, working, studying, traveling, commuting, and then not really sleeping well, you know, yeah. uh, fitfully. 
No and one will ever tell you in graduate school that it's too much. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. No. Or an Ashtanga, no, mostly. Yeah, you, you keep <laughs> working hard. You're doing a lot of, you're doing the lion's share of work here. You're doing great. <laughs> I was like, yeah, thank you. And then, you know, arriving to Mysore and being emotionally so bound up and exhausted that, it, that the effect was there on the body. Mm-hmm. And then after I think three weeks, I saw things melt because I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a, a cell phone. I didn't, we didn't have those things anyway. Um, and I, and just playing cards and, and reading the, I think I read the, the entire uh, illustrated Mahabharata in comic book form. And nice. um just thing like the whole body just melted by the experience. And like, that was more transformative than the actual teaching, which wasn't from my experience, very hard or penetrative, you know, compared mm-hmm. to what I was enduring in New York. Um, and so it was like, wow, this is like the actual way of life is, is more transformative than the anything else for the practice. And I was like, this is, this is kind of cool. Yeah. And I think so profound. that was even that was that was underlined even further when I met Richard. Uh-huh. That being next to someone with a voice like that could have such a profound effect on my body. Yeah. And things loosened and opened just and my chest could breathe and my voice would would drop a modulation just yeah. by being like just by being next to him like oh this is what parampara actually mm. means and I, mm. I, I like this is what i this is i want to be i want i want to kidnap him <laughs> keep him <laughs> i know the feeling yeah. i could see pablo escobar doing the same thing and being <laughs> equally frustrated that it wasn't working you like this isn't working <laughs> i'm supposed to be nicer <laughs> i kidnapped richard freeman and nothing happened i'm still unhappy <laughs> yeah i mean re- meeting richard was a real revelation for me too um I think it was, when did I meet him? 2012 was Mm -hmm. the first time I finally met him in person in 2012. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just finished graduate school and I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I was really, um, I was feeling like I was finished with the academic thing. I, I, you know, finally, you know, not only sort of gotten past the depression, but gotten healthy enough to realize that all the people around me were depressed. (laughs) (laughs) And that, you know, the whole academic environment just suddenly struck me as extremely neurotic. And um, yeah, and, you know, I mean, I look, I mean, some of the, most wonderful and certainly most brilliant people I've ever met were there. Uh, but uh, I wanted to do something else. And I was teaching, I was teaching yoga all the time. I was teaching Mysore by that time, you know, and, and I was really loving that. And um, so I figured that I would just go and be poor and teach Mysore. And so <laughs> the most, 
irresponsible decision you ever made. <laughs> yeah, you said, yeah. Well, you, you know, said I that. hadn't made that decision yet. <laughs> I was still, I was like, yeah, but I mean, God, you can't make a living teaching my store. And like, maybe I said, okay. So, and you know, so I, I actually, I, so I had this postdoc that was pretty great uh, at UVA for a year. And then the philosophy department at Virginia offered me a tenure track job. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, okay, you know, Charlottesville's fantastic. And it's like, it's a great school. I love it. And so I was like, okay, yeah. But then that, so that summer I went to Boulder and, um, you know, and I met Richard Freeman and I met my wife and um, I was just so taken by his discourses on yoga. Like that was it. Just hearing him talk about yoga and hearing the, and especially that this kind of this spirit of like showing the way that things fit together, art, which is what you're kind of taught to do in academia, like, like always distinguishing this from that. And how is this different from that? And what makes this unique? And, you know, and what's your argument and what's your thesis? And but, but watching him like talk about all of these different, you know, seemingly disparate approaches to yoga and even disparate sort of, you know, spiritual traditions. And, you know, he has this, um, you know, he has this like, you know, this, 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 this genuine and, and really profound ability to like show you the, the commonalities between things that even on the face of them seem diametrically opposed. Mm, and I just thought like, yeah. this is so exciting and yeah. so first rate, so so generous, you know, to use thought in that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And uh, so. I, yeah, when I assumed that he threw was, it all away. <laughs> yeah. So I stayed. I, I assumed he, he was a PhD in philosophy and I even like described him that way to a couple people. Is it? No, no, no. He's, he's well, self-taught. He, he, well, he went to, he went to university of Chicago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so I don't, he, he never bothered to do the, to, to do a PhD, but I'm pretty sure he did do, he did finish a master's degree at least. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but, but it's, it's a kind of, it's like, um, you, you, you see folk artists who break open a, the, the traditional through line of, of academic progress in, in art, and yeah. then they just kind of explode um the whole all these notions and it's like wow that's kind of i feel that way i felt that way like as you're describing about richard as someone who was instead of like separating let's bring together and like yeah and then your your mind is blown yeah <laughs> yeah i really did have my mind blown so many times yeah <laughs> listening to him yeah mm -hmm. it's interesting i always find the the yoga so fascinating because I'm sorry, I just muted my wife. <laughs> I always find the yoga so fascinating because it's both um, like, like we were talking about this separation of self away from all the things we're not, <laughs> which is almost everything. <laughs> and yet at the same time, it's also yes. And it's also like the joining, like we're talking about of things that appear to be different but are really the same mm -hmm. and um 
how do you see, how do you see it? Do you, I know because different people sit in different camps, right? Like, oh, it's a separation, it's a joining, it's a union, it's a dissolving. Oh, you know, there are different ways of conceiving of it, right? And I think mm-hmm. it makes sense to conceive of it in different ways in different moments, even, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. kind of like it depends, you know, what kind of where you are. And I think, what, and one of the things that, ri- that you know, again, I, I, this is very much a teaching that, that that Richard, even though I came to it very slowly and and you know in a very stumbling kind of way, I've come to appreciate that like you don't need an overarching view. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't need to take sides from all you know from these different you know because now I sort of see these different philosophical viewpoints as like you know as like streams of thought sometimes you know unbelievably inspired sometimes coming from vistas so high that i can only imagine what things look like from up there you know Mm -hmm. but nonetheless there's no sense and there there's no there's no you know reason for me to suppose that there's sort of one you know panoptical vista from which all of these other systems are going to make sense you know and so sometimes you know you you read something in the in the yoga sutra that just resonates so deeply and then sometimes you're reading the yoga sutra and you're like what the hell does this have to do with me <laughs> you know? like yeah. you know because it's so ascetic and yeah. i mean it's so, and it's so austere you know and i love that about it you know and there's a, a time you know especially before having children when that spoke to me very deeply yeah I start having children and I'm like, yeah, you know, and they imagine like now I like one thing that, that like, I imagine if I came to look at my, the, the special regard that I have for my children as something for me to transcend and overcome, mm-hmm. does that, you know, how does that change my relationship to them? Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I remember thinking, I'm so glad that I had a mother who didn't see, you know, her love for me as something to, you know, her, her special Endure. regard for me. Yeah. <laughs> something to overcome. And I imagine also what would the world be like if everyone suddenly had, you know, only the kind of love that the kind of universal love that the saints have for all of us, for their mm-hmm. children, you know, where would mm-hmm. and I'm thinking like that would really that would be a tragedy. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. That could lead to all kinds of evil. That might be our end. You know, that would be our final undoing. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm pretty convinced that our son Jed, who I've adopted, um, I've, he's my stepchild. It, I'm pretty convinced that he also believes that I've created a panopticon in the house to <laughs> discipline and punish him at all times, and I'm always. Always aware of an opportunity to. <laughs> here's the yeah. I'm I'm watching you, young man. <laughs> Speaking of which, what are the texts like? What are what what's inspiring you now? You know, Patanjali Yoga Sutras feels a little austere. What is it that you're drawing inspiration no, but from? It, but it but it but it inspires me very much. Yeah. Yeah. What did Richard much. say? There's plenty to like about the Yoga Sutras, even if they're dry as toast. <laughs> 
No, but like there must be other things that are like, you know, I mean, we always talk about the yoga sutras because it's sort of the foundational, I don't know, text that that everyone refers to, but there's so many others, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've I've always drawn great inspiration from Chogyam Trungpa, mm-hmm. you know, from from, from that uh, from from his massive body of writing. As, yeah. as speaking of examples of people who have possibly abused their position. Wow. Yeah, you know, I <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know all the details of that one. I don't I yeah. Which but yeah, there you go. There's another one. I mean, I mean to be for, fair, I've done sure, as much cocaine know. as him. So I mean, who am I to say? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. Um Right. I mean, there, there's another, there's a, there's another totally, um, yeah, complicated and yeah. Right. I mean, he, he drank himself to death. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and um, so, yeah. And I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of that. Um, but of course, you know, I take everything that, I mean, of course it informs my perception of what, he has written but um yeah i've there there have been many alcoholics in my life from whom i've drawn great inspiration mm. and and also loved very deeply you know mm-hmm. and I, know, yeah. I know just how brilliant they can be so i don't you know um i don't i don't write anybody off <laughs> the um uh, you saw the the video um the film uh crazy wisdom about chagum no, I don't think I've seen that one. It's, oh, wait, tell me. Wait, I might have. What is that? Is that the? It's a. It's a documentary. It about, yeah. Oh, it's sorry. about him. Specific, about, no, I don't. It's about him I've specifically. It's about him specifically, about. and it's interviews with everyone. I mean, as many people as they could get who were in his community, uh-huh. and talking about his excesses, but also his enormous beauty and. Um, wisdom wisdom and <laughs> yeah. they you know they have the video of the rainbows that appeared above his funeral mm-hmm. um and oh what's her name the the buddhist nun who's most associated Prima with Pima Chodron yeah. and the famous quote there i think i've talked i've said this a couple of times on this podcast i'm not sure but you know how was how was chokum rinpoche able to maintain his enlightenment while doing all of these things. Yeah. And she and Pima said, I don't know how he did it, but he did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like really kind of really surprising answer. Yeah, um, yeah. I, that's not what I thought you were gonna say. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. But you know, I, I had the great, I, I've, I had the great, um, privilege of uh being spending a lot of time in the in the shambhala center which is this mm-hmm. kind of like this center in, in boulder where um when it was empty during the pandemic you know like i had because i was because <laughs> I, I had a mysore program in there and so you know i took advantage of that and i was in there at weird hours and i was yeah. in there a lot and i was in there when there wasn't a single other soul in the building many many for many for a long time you know for yeah. like mm-hmm. for like a year and um yeah, and I just, I'll just, I'm not going to get into the details, but I'll say that in, in the shrine room, particularly, which is an extraordinary place. Uh, and yeah, I just, I, I would say 
that his presence is very strong there. Mm-hmm. And on certain occasions, it was particularly strong. And um, yeah, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just very grateful for that. I feel, you know, it's like sometimes, you know, you can feel it's like being in the presence of, of, of Richard, like the best things that he taught me, he didn't tell me by saying anything. It was by sitting with him or watching him or just like being in a, like involved in some way with him because we had all kinds of dealings, you know, with the studio and everything. All like that, you know, there were a lot of things happened there that were not always easy, often confusing. And, um, and, and just Mm -hmm. like, you know, and just like feeling like just being in someone's presence as you like navigate relationship, like that was pretty Mm -hmm. extraordinary. And I, and I, and, and I've learned, I've, I feel like I've learned a lot by being in the Shambhala Center when nobody else was there. Yeah, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, I've also learned a lot from um, the, um, from the, being in the Satchitananda uh, ashram in Virginia, mm-hmm. and especially in the, there's a, I forget what they even call it now, but there's a, there's a, there's a, like a mausoleum, like a, like a shrine where he's buried. Uh, and, you know, and there too, if you, you can go there at certain times and you can be in there by yourself for hours and no one's around. And I learned a lot doing that. Um, and I take, I take great inspiration from uh, Krishnamurti, mm-hmm. from, his, from his talks and his writings. His struggle. Um, I, I read I read Krishnamurti a lot. It's something I come back to a lot, um, you know, very like cyclically. Um, hmm. So, yeah. It's um, interesting. I think that's how children also, I mean, you know, we always talk about how it's so important to like be the example because that's really how the kids are learning, right? Our children well, learn sure from us by listening. just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just by like being in in your presence they they're like you know absorbing all of this the way you are in the world and the way you be right rather than what you do they're they're absorbing yeah or what you say exactly (laughs) and so it's um I think I think as adults we're the same way right and we when we're around or or come together in that that sangha that's why sangha is so important right as we start to all like vibrate or we start to like be together and that being you know especially if there's someone who has a high vibration or a high energy a lot of prana high consciousness we all start to be lifted up by that being yeah 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 it's really important maybe even more than like what we read or, you know, what yeah. so many asanas we do. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Yeah. yeah. What do you feel has been the most valuable, I don't know, experience in your, all of your years of practice? Mm. We've been talking about, isn't I that think, the subject maybe of the conversation? Maybe something we, we haven't touched upon. <laughs> oh, geez. I mean, there's just so many, there's so many standout, so many standout moments. Um, yeah, so many standout moments of learning. Um, I mean, watching my wife give birth 
for the first time. That was pretty life changing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was, yeah, that was, you know, another, I feel like I, th- I crossed the threshold of consciousness there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What shifted? What changed? What was that like? I mean, most men don't talk about this. So if you're open to it, <laughs> I'd love to well, hear. Just like, yeah, like, wa- like watching, you know, watching it, like, like watching a new being come into the world in that way and just yeah. like, like seeing so close up this sort of this chain of generation, you know, like mm-hmm. this, this, this generative process, you know, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and feeling, you know, you know, most, mostly as a, as a kind of worthless bystander, <laughs> you know, but, but also, you know, in most moments, but also as, as like, as, as like holding space for that yeah. too, like as being mm-hmm. called suddenly, like hold space for that, you know, and then mm-hmm. like, and I, I feel like that, that's like the, like the, 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 the kind of visceral pull to like show up for being a father. You know, mm-hmm. like hold, you know, now hold space for this because now these, these beings are developing, you know, and this is happening under your eyes and like, you can't control it and you don't understand it, but you have to give all of your attention to making sure it goes well. <laughs> and like, I, yeah. Yeah. I read this book, uh, The Farm, uh, The yeah. Natural Way of, of Birthing, if you guys know it. Um, I forget the lady's name who made the center and the whole thing. Um, but she there's a there's a part in that book where she's, I think, in her like third birth and she's doing it the whole natural way with her midwife and everything. And she said, Well, what I like to do is when I'm, you know, going through the labor is I like to stare at my husband's face. Mm. And I and I found it like so surprising and flattering as a as a gender and <laughs> like kind of I was taken aback by it because I had I kind of gone into reading the book thinking that you know this is a very feminine very female space female empowerment space you know your husband is you know superfluous it, almost like you like you just said and that's what <laughs> kind of struck me yeah um useless bystander and yeah. yet you know she felt that it was like so intrinsic to the experience that that was her kind of um load lodestar or touchstone through the experiences like my husband's face is why i'm here and that's that's gonna that that's helping me through this entire thing yeah that is surprising (laughs) (laughs) i mean i just remember being awestruck by like 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 seeing that the body of my wife has this intelligence that knows how to do this thing. And it also like struck me that like, that's the deepest yoga pose I'm ever going to witness. And I'm not going to do it in this life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's awesome. And also thinking that, 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 and it, and it also gave me kind of a, I think it shifted a little bit the way, or, or like it gave me like like this just the, at least this little this little moment into the insight because I I kept reflecting on the fact that like that was yoga that was yoga like that was asana you know like mm. like at at its at its fullest like at its like and and I and I kept and I kept a, and asking myself why you know and I and 
and I and it and it came to well, it's because of the way that it's holding space for this feminine creative energy to flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? and I think of the and I think of the whole sort of Shiva Shakti mythology in those kind of yeah. terms. I mean, I started to at that moment. That's when I started really thinking like. Oh, I think the Shiva Shakti thing is maybe starting to make a little sense to me, especially this one way of thinking about it, yeah. which is of thinking of it in terms of like Shakti being this, this intelligence of life, this creative intelligence that also has this dissolutive power. And then Shiva is representing just the spaciousness dimension, you know, of consciousness. If, if Shakti is the, the fecundity of it mm. and the like principle and the thing that like manifests and shows itself then shiva is the 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 spaciousness dimension that like holds it all because that because that creative energy has to spread out and it has to move and so the space has to kind of like keep you know shifting shape sort of around that Mm -hmm. and um and, and 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 so that really and then I started, you know, then I started thinking through the Shiva Shakti mythology in those terms. So I think it, it gave me this whole way, like another way of thinking about, about yoga that was that's, so like, so real, so visceral. So that's beautiful. a, that's a beautiful inversion of thinking of Shakti as something penetrating Shiva. Uh-huh. That's really yeah. wild. But I, I think like that's how I, I understand that the Kundalini rising metaphor too, like Kundalini piercing through the psychical knots and rising through Sushumna, rising through the mm-hmm. hollow center of the body. Mm-hmm. You know, but it, it is an inversion in a way. Mm-hmm. You know? Wow. But you oh. but it's also it's a it's a traditional inversion. You know, it's not yeah. a yeah. like you yeah. like you find that. Mm. Yeah, it's just when, looking at it from the other the other side. We used right. to do a lot more of that when Harmony and I first met. It was really <laughs> penetrating. Yeah, that's really cool. Huh. It's like the fit is the fish in the water, is the water around the fish. That's right? what I thought. Yeah. I was like, that's interesting. That's not that's not what I'm used to. Hmm. Oh, there yeah, it's, it's it's just if they're, you know, but if you like if you think of it from the non-dual perspective, right? It's sort of like and you know that like each is illuminating the other each side yeah. is illuminating the other like the mm-hmm. like the, the space of consciousness opens up to receive the creative energy and that just is the space in which the creative energy spreads itself out and it's and it opens because this creative energy spreads itself out and like couldn't do that possibly otherwise so they're they're they you know they they need each other in that way yeah. creative energy mm. consciousness yeah and that's where the um Purusha um, and Prakriti then and the the coccyx <laughs> yeah. and the pubic bone meet <laughs> there Tana one always pa- moving towards the other yeah that's right Tell us a little bit about what you're doing online now. You have, I think, a really interesting course that you offer. Oh yeah, I have this. It looks interesting. Course. Yeah, it's totally nuts because it's a forty-week course. Yeah, yeah, it's cool because actually, so I'm we're on week thirty-nine of the second round right now. Yeah. Um, and people keep wanting to do it, which is astonishing. You laughed like online, ha, ha, ha. and then you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm actually like almost finished a 40 week course." <laughs> right. 
yeah. And so, you know, we read widely in, in, in yoga and classical yoga and, and tantric yoga and in Buddhism, both classical and, and tantric. And we also, we, we, we read even like stuff in, in natural science and, uh, you know, insofar as it relates. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you know this guy named Lauren Isley? Have you ever heard of Lauren Isley? He's no. not a very well-known figure, but I highly recommend this writing. He was a natural scientist in the in the 20th century, and you know, and I don't think he had any interest or background in Eastern religion at all. But you know, he writes about the like the the kind of fluidity of uh, I mean, he write, he writes about evolution, and so he kind of writes about the fluidity of life and the fluidity of life forms. You know, and there are these just these wonderful moments in it where he's 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 sort of you know without thinking of it in these terms, he's he's like retracing the these insights into what Buddhists call emptiness and impermanence. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea yeah. that everything depends on something else, and even talks about like the way it impacts him and the way it kind of you know generate like calls forth compassion. You know, <laughs> oh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, amazing! Um, because so often, you know, there are these ideas, and like when, like mo- most of the arguments for about the emptiness of self are are like these analytic arguments that proceed by going something like, "You have this ordinary idea of yourself; it has certain features, like you think of yourself in essentialist terms, and you think of yourself as being permanent, and you think of yourself as, you know, as being sort of." singular and autonomous and so on and so forth and then the arguments go from there and I just keep thinking like not where I went to school are you kidding (laughs) like that's so like nobody thinks that anymore what are you talking about (laughs) so antiquated so you know I always find those arguments like slightly embarrassing um (laughs) (laughs) Mm. but uh you know, but then, but, and, and, you know, and then, and then you also be able to talk, well, empty, like we don't think about emptiness in the way. And I'm like, I'm like, we've been thinking about ourselves that way since Darwin. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, and so reading Lauren Isley I, I, is, you know, is, I think it's a really nice way of like getting people into like thinking about this idea of, of emptiness without it, without it, like coming from this, this more kind of entrenched like a like a like an approach that's like entrenched in a certain spiritual dogma Mm. yeah that's beautiful I love that and like from the science perspective like yeah yeah (laughs) spiritual sciences (laughs) we um at, at our art school in Chicago we were forced um to take physics so that we could have a bachelor's degree and uh-huh. And the guy did the best he could with us, you know. Yeah. But really, yeah, kind there, of... there are special physics classes for right for yeah. art majors. <laughs> exactly, there are, and we we got one. The and, Dow of physics. No, it was just he just the we he what is that when um the top the t- you grade by the top of the class a curve the curve the grade <laughs> curve was like maybe thirty seven percent passing. <laughs> Wow. It was yeah. pretty bad. And that was really generous of him. <laughs> but the but we were in love with him because of the of the concepts that he presented to us. And it is and what really 
resonated for me was the perspective of this of relativity and the speed of light was just Isn't that extraordinary. I, yeah. I felt like I walked into that class pretty cynical and I walked out, you know, a believer in God. Like that's yeah. God yeah. now. I know yeah. what God is. It's light. Uh-huh. And, it's, <laughs> and it was just, and I was, it was transformative. And, okay. and I, and anytime I have a, you know, if you know, articles come up, it's like, oh yeah, I want to read about, you know, what's coming up in, in theories of, gel, of, 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 um, Really? of physics now and that are you know putting things together string theories like yeah yeah this is about god yeah tell me <laughs> black holes and dark matter and yeah dark, <laughs> like amazing stuff yeah. like that's that's this is everything to do with my yoga practice and everything yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so will you will you offer this course again so yeah, can yeah. Study I'm with you, and... but I'm gonna, you know, instead of doing, instead of doing the the, the like one forty week thing, I'm just gonna break it up into parts so that people can come in and out as needed. Mm-hmm. Because what, because a frequent experience is that I, you know people hear about it from their friends or they you know they want it and they want to sign up, but it's like, sure, come back in nine months and we'll do it again. And so you know, so then I realized that it would be. It would be better for everyone involved if we kind of broke it into discrete chunks. Yeah. So where can they find me? So I'm teaching a lot around in, in Europe in the net in this summer. Yeah. I'll be in Europe this summer. And um, so I have a teacher's intensive in Sintra. I'm afraid that's, I think that's sold out. Um, <laughs> Come back uh, next year. <laughs> yeah. and One so more people- year. Can people but get a hold some... of you on your website, on Instagram, tylandrum.com, on IG? Yeah, Can they reach out? Can they obsessively stalk you? <laughs> I think he's already being obsessively social stalked. Social media. <laughs> yeah, I'm on social media. I'm easy to find, you know, anyone who wants to. Find yeah, I have a website and of course I post where, you know, where I'm going to go. Um, yeah. So I have, it's, I have a, a, a uh, a retreat at the Monte Velho Retreat Center in Southern Portugal in May. Oh, nice. That's oh. weeks. That, that's an awesome place. It's so beautiful. The beach is amazing. That's near there and it's so quiet and wild and it's fantastic. And um, there's also a couple weeks in Salento in Southern Italy. I think that's in August. I'm also going this year for the first time in... I think it's July, the beginning of July to Nosen up in Norway. Oh, beautiful. Oh. At Alex's place. Yeah. Nosen, I'm super yeah. Nice. That. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Amazing. Uh, and then, you know, many sort of, um, oh, in Croatia soon too. That's also um, doing a thing in Croatia. Beautiful. In Zagreb for super soul yoga. And then like some weekends around, you know, different places here and there that you can find out. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we Lovely. have lots of European listeners, so lots yeah. of lots of opportunity. Yeah, we have a big Swedish contingent. Swedish. I have to, I'm contractually yeah. obligated cool. to mention Norwegian now. Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Well, this has been so so wonderful. Thank you so much it for has been. joining so us, for inviting me. It was a pleasure to to talk with you guys, and I look yeah. forward to the next time. Yeah, us too. We'll dive deeper into the philosophical aspects. Wonderful. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. 
Just a quick reminder to sign up for my Ancient Breathing Masterclass happening. We're going to really learn how to decrease anxiety, to increase energy, and the steps you need to take to start to develop a pranayama practice, a practice of ancient breathing, because all of these breathwork practices that are being taught now in our modern day times are actually based on the ancient practices of yoga and pranayama, that are found in the Hatha Pratipika being the first source text for pranayama practices. And that's the text that we study inside my Ancient Breathing course. So just a reminder, these classes are free. They're free master classes, April 7th and April 8th. I hope you come inside. We're going to have an incredible time together. And I can't wait to invite you into my Ancient Breathing 2.0 program. Um, it's going to be amazing this time around, and I'm excited to teach you all about the Hatha Pratipika, Ayurveda, how these breathwork practices can help to balance our Ayurvedic constitutions, as well as increase consciousness, deepen our meditation practice, and lead into samadhi, higher states of awareness. So come on in, find all the links in the show notes, and also in my Instagram bio or DM me. I'm happy to send you the links. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking waves There's a heart